Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the AFCA program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. And I'm Nicole Willett. I'm Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundation and, like Judd, have served at the National Security Council as well as the U.S. State Department and Senate Foreign Relations. This podcast has everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards Sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode is about Nigeria, and we are joined by Uzodima Iwala, the Chief Executive Officer of the Africa Center in New York City. And if you haven't been to the Africa Center in Harlem, you've got to go. Uzo is also an acclaimed author, publishing Beasts of No Nation in 2005, Our County of People in 2012, and Speak No Evil in 2018. Judd, can you break down the history of U.S. policy towards Nigeria? Yeah, but you're going to have to indulge me as I go too long. And then Nigerians, you'll have to forgive me if I miss anything important. But here we go. The United States established a consulate in Lagos in the early 1950s. After the country's independence in 1960, the U.S. Embassy opened up consulates in Enugu, Ibadan, and Kaduna, the capitals of Nigeria's three regions. The U.S. government had close ties with Nigeria's first government, inviting Prime Minister Abubakar Tafa Balewa to meet with Kennedy in the White House in 1962. One former U.S. diplomat called Nigeria the Kennedy administration's pet African country. When Balewa and several prominent Nigerian leaders were killed in the 1966 coup, the United States feared that the country would be engulfed in a civil war. The anti-Ibo riots in the northern cities were traumatic for Nigerians and Americans alike. Many U.S. diplomats who served in Kaduna, for instance, struggled with alcoholism and suicide after witnessing the violence there. After the war broke out in 1967, there was significant division within the United States. President Johnson saw the war as an unwelcome distraction, ordering his aides to get it off the television set. Many Americans identified with the Biafran cause, attended relief concerts, and donated some $11 million to feed, clothe, and assist Biafra's displaced populations. The U.S. Embassy, however, strongly backed the federal government. This caused considerable tension with President Nixon, who talked about Biafra on the campaign trail and allegedly wanted the United States to recognize Biafra. His aides were so frustrated with what they viewed as biased U.S. reporting that they requested that the Canadian Embassy share its reports. Relationships between Washington and Lagos deteriorated in part because neither the Johnson nor the Nixon administration would sell arms to the Nigerians, and U.S. humanitarian assistance was regarded by the Nigerian government as material support for the Biafrans. When the war ended in January 1970, the United States and the Nigerian government tried to mend fences, Secretary of State Rogers visited the country in February, and the economic relationship deepened as Nigeria became an important oil producer. Under President Ford, Kissinger and the Nigerians were often at loggerheads. When Nigeria's foreign minister told Kissinger that the U.S. had a great ambassador in Lagos, Kissinger replied, Good for whom? You or us? Kissinger tried to stop Nigeria from recognizing the MPLA in Angola. That backfired dramatically. The Nigerians leaked the demarche to the press, and that prompted an attack on a U.S. facility. The Nigerians also rejected an effort by Kissinger to visit Lagos. When Carter came to office, relationships warmed considerably. Head of state of Boston Joe visited the White House. Carter, in return, went to Nigeria. President Carter also welcomed Nigeria's new civilian president, Shehu Shigari, to Washington. 
While Nigeria was less of a priority under President Reagan, the United States supported Nigerian peacekeeping mission in Chad and Vice President Bush visited in 1982. Even though the United States welcomed Nigeria's leadership in response to the crises in Liberia and Sierra Leone, bilateral ties reached a nadar during military dictator Sonny Abacha's rule. The murder of Niger Delta activist Ken Sarawia in 1995 by the Nigerian government prompted Washington to recall its ambassador, impose an arm embargo on Nigeria, and slap travel restrictions on members of the Nigerian military and their family. When Abacha died in 1998, Washington saw it as an opportunity for reset. The United States welcomed the election of Abbasanjo in 1999. Abbasanjo met with Presidents Clinton and Bush several times at the White House, and both U.S. presidents visit Nigeria. In the 2000s, the relationships continued to have their ups and downs, especially when sanctions were reimposed following a massacre at Zakibiem in 2003 and over Nigeria's decision to offer asylum to former Liberian President Charles Taylor. The instability in the Niger Delta was a regular issue of concern. Flawed elections in 2007 and 2003, as well as Abbasanjo's failed attempt to amend the constitution to allow for a third term, all of these things strained bilateral ties. President Bush nonetheless invited new President Umaru Yaradua to the White House in 2007, commending the first civilian-to-civilian transfer of power. U.S. diplomats viewed Goodluck Jonathan's relatively smooth ascension to the presidency following Yaradua's death as a sign of a maturing political system. However, several sticking points developed during the Jonathan years, chiefly over human rights abuses in the fight against Boko Haram. Many listeners may remember Michelle Obama and other prominent U.S. leaders participating in the hashtag Bring Back Our Girls social media campaign. The United States praised Jonathan and his successor, Mohamedou Buhari, for accepting election results in 2015, marking the first opposition win in the country's history. The Obama and Trump administration continued to work with Nigerians to address insecurity across the country and economic woes in the face of low oil prices and the pandemic. As has been the case in the past, tensions have repeatedly flared over human rights, corruption, arms sales, and recently over the shutdown of Twitter. Uzo, what do you think the Biden strategy should be towards Nigeria? And this is your opportunity to tell me that I really messed up the history. So feel free to correct when necessary. First, I'll say thank you, Judd and Nicole, for having me on. Second, I'll say I think your history was really good and very thorough. I think you got all the major points, even some that I was like, oh, word, that did happen, didn't it? So thank you for that. So the Biden administration needs to take a proactive approach to Nigeria for a number of reasons. The first being Nigeria is the behemoth in Africa. We've got 200 million people. We are one fifth of the total population of the continent, one seventh of all black people in the world. If you are not engaging Nigeria constructively and proactively, you don't really have an Africa policy. That's my personal opinion. And what does that mean? In this present day, I think it means a couple of things. I think the first thing is, you know, back in the day, it was all about oil. It was about Nigeria as a, as a security buffer within the continent. It was about those things, really. I think now things have shifted in terms of the relationship with the United States not purchasing oil in the same quantity as it did from Nigeria. That relationship has changed or matured, if you want. Um, but there are still other really extremely important relationships. One is security in West Africa and certainly over all of Africa. 
if you want to have a peaceful West Africa, if you want to deal with a bunch of the conflicts that are happening, you know, some might say as a result of US or Western policy in countries like Libya that kind of open the floodgates of small arms moving across the Sahel, um, moving down into Central Africa, Nigeria is going to be a big part in that. And it's also going to be a big player in that because of our own homegrown problem of Boko Haram, which has been fueled in a sense by some of this unrest that's happening further north. So if you really wanted to have a comprehensive Africa strategy, a West Africa strategy, what's going on in Nigeria security-wise has to be a real part of your calculus. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is, of course, around the issue of climate, which is a big thing now that we're seeing with the ICPC report coming out with the emphasis that the Biden administration is putting on climate and with the way that people are speaking about sub-Saharan Africa as essentially those people who are going to suffer as opposed to those people who might have the solution. And I firmly believe that a country like Nigeria can be a solution in the fight against climate change. And I think if you rethink your foreign policy with this in mind, certain things like the Power Africa programs that are being relaunched, other things around reimagining what economies look like, reimagining what development cooperation, I won't say aid, but I'll say cooperation because of my certain political beliefs around it looks like, I think you get a very different approach to, to Nigeria or a very different consideration of Nigeria as a country you know, within the framework of U.S. foreign policy. So Judd, how do we make that happen? The answer, of course, is engage, right? In good times and bad times. Here's the biggest problem with our bilateral relationship with Nigeria. Nigerians and Americans, that is the problem. Nigerians are a proud people and they have strong views and Americans are frustrated by that sometimes and they decide just to pick up their tools and go home. And so there's constantly this tension in the interagency about what Nigeria should be but isn't or how difficult it is, etc., etc. Luxuries that we don't, by the way, have in any other country, right? We don't say that with India. We don't say, well, they're really difficult. So a couple things that are really important. First of all, repetition and refinement. Come up with your approach. Present it to Nigerians, not just the federal government, but states, civil society, and listen and refine constantly. I've seen this happen over and over again with success. So repetition, refinement. Remember also that Nigeria is not just the presidency or the villa, and you have a number, a universe of actors who really matter. And if you want to move the country in a certain direction with your Nigerian partners, you've got to engage all of Nigeria in doing that. So those are a couple of things that I think are really important for the interagency to think about. But Uzo, give me like a big idea, right? Sky's the limit. What's the thing that we should really be doing with the relationship? Okay, so before I give you the big idea, I just want to jump back to a couple of things you said. First, I want to say, just to bolster your point, there are many Nigerias. And I think that's something that, that Americans can intuitively understand in the sense that there are many Americas. It's not just one understanding of what Nigeria is. Nigeria has like is amazing for so many reasons, not least because of the diversity of our, our population and the diversity of opinions, cultural, social, political. And that can be problematic, as folks know here in the United States, as we're seeing, but it can also be very beneficial to the development of the country. I think the other thing to remember is that Nigeria has been doing this really for what? Only about 50 years at this point in time. Democracies or systems of government need to, to grow and they need to grow with local input. So I think in, in trying to impose an outside solution based off of what you know in X country or here in the United States isn't going to work. It really is about listening and again, listening to all those different Nigerias and what the different stakeholders in this country are trying to say. I think that is one of the biggest keys for trying to unlock how to deal with 
Nigeria from a U.S. perspective. I have a lot to say about Nigeria from a Nigerian perspective, but that's another podcast. In terms of the big idea for how the United States can engage with Nigeria, I think it's really two. I think the first is it's a tricky thing, but I think really it's about showing respect, right? And acknowledging that the Nigerian United States will be, have to be equal partners in what's going on on the continent of Africa. I think oftentimes Americans can forget that the United States is one of many countries around the world that thinks of itself highly. Nigerians think of ourselves very highly, even if we have a lot of criticism of our government. But when it comes to engaging, you have to engage on that level of not we're trying to teach you what to do, but like we're, we're active partners in trying to figure this thing out. And that has to happen even more so now that the United States is dealing with its own internal issues that have been blasted on the world stage about what it means to have a democracy. Nigeria also has its own internal issues about this. And approaching Nigeria from, from the perspective of we can get through this together, we have a lot to learn about how to do this, as opposed to this is how you should run a government, will completely change the kind of dialogue that, that you have and how constructive that dialogue is. That's the first thing. I think what that means is you have to think about a presidential visit. Tricky at this time, especially because of some of the happenings in Nigeria, but I think that is the level of engagement that will show that the United States wants to be a serious partner with Nigeria as a country and wants to engage fully with all of the issues that we're gonna face across the continent. That's the first thing. The second thing I think really has to be about climate. I keep coming back to it, not just because it's there, but because this is the way that you unlock so many things around security, around economic development. I just need to be clear with people that you will have a massive migration problem if we hit you know, 1.5, 2 degrees Celsius. That's a lot of people from Nigeria, from the rest of West Africa that are going to have to move. So you want to engage constructively now, but that also means thinking about it from Nigeria's perspective as well. We're an energy producer. We are a fossil fuel producer. We produce oil, we produce natural gas. If the United States decides to move away from, in its engagement funding, for example, through Power Africa, funding projects that, you know, providing energy through fossil fuel burning, what you're going to end up doing is condemning one-fifth of Africa's population to an energyless future. Uzo, you are part of a new generation of globally acclaimed writers. But to put it in the Nigerian context, you're also following in the footsteps of Chinua Achebe, Wale Soyinka, Ben Okri. But you and your contemporaries are experimenting with themes and genres, including science fiction and thrillers, in exciting new ways. Can you talk about this next level of Nigerian literature? I can. and I mean, it's good company to be compared to, and I'm very humbled by that. The thing about Nigerian literature today, and I think this is also true across the continent, is what people are finally getting to see is really the diversity of thought that exists within this space, within the literary space. That's really, really exciting. And it's part of a whole cultural unveiling, I think, that people are coming in into contact with that's across film and music and all the other forms, whether, you know, visual arts. But for Nigerian writers, for Nigerian authors, I think this is a golden moment because we get a chance not just to shape the world or to present the world that we have seen, but also to think about how the future is shaped. That's where you get the science fiction. That's where you get all of these stories about cross-cultural travels. That's where you get all these stories about the mix that makes up our population and the themes and the the conflicts and the the struggles and the stories that come out of that. So 
you know, I'm constantly amazed by the kind of work and the themes that are being addressed, you know, in particular by younger generation of Nigerian authors and the fearlessness of that generation. And I think that's that's something so positive and that's what you have to look to if you want to know where Nigeria is going. Well, that's the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa. Thanks.